Hello, and welcome to the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, brought to you by the North Carolina Sustainable Energy Association. I'm your host, Matt Abel. Squeaky Clean listeners, welcome to the 91st episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, where we bring you the latest in North Carolina clean energy news, policy, and more every two weeks. Today, we're presenting another live episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, which was recorded in front of more than 800 attendees at this year's State Energy Conference in Raleigh, North Carolina. The conversation was a keynote plenary panel focused on federal investments in EVs and EV charging infrastructure and how to make sure equity and accessibility are top priorities as we work to transition the transportation sector to a zero carbon future. As part of the conversation, we were joined by a government agency in charge of distributing some of the funds allocated through the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law and the Inflation Reduction Act, a nonprofit organization working with diverse communities throughout the country to improve access to EVs, and a company that's employing local technicians across the U.S. to help maintain all of the new EV chargers we're set to put in the ground over the next decade and beyond. But before we get into that conversation, we have a few short updates for you. First up, as you may recall, in our last episode, we are focused on net metering and changes that are coming to the residential rooftop solar market in North Carolina. As we covered in that episode, the North Carolina Utilities Commission issued an order in March outlining changes to NEM that included a new bridge rate providing some time to transition to the time of use rates, along with a new storage pilot program. If you're interested in learning more about the details of that order, make sure to give our last episode a listen. However, since that episode, we do have an update to share regarding the timing of the new NEM tariffs moving forward. Just this week, the North Carolina Utilities Commission granted an extension of time to implement the new bill savings calculator and the tariffs. The updated timeline requires Duke to develop a calculator by July 1, 2023, and orders that the new NEM tariffs go into effect starting October 1, 2023. I've included a link in the show notes to the order granting the extension of time. Next up, I wanted to provide a short update on the legislative session and some of the clean energy-related bills we've been tracking. In particular, we recently saw a bill in the North Carolina House, House Bill 48, pass before the crossover deadline, making it eligible for a Senate vote that could potentially move this bill closer to law. And this bill is especially concerning, given the potential impact it has on the built environment in the state. It includes language that subverts the efforts of the building experts at the Building Code Council by preventing the council from updating energy codes on new construction until at least 2031. And unfortunately, homes in the state are, in essence, built to 2009 standards, as we're pretty far behind the eight ball on updating energy codes. That would mean that new homes built closer to the end of this decade would be constructed under energy codes that would be more than two decades old. Over the past two years, the Building Code Council has been weighing updates to the energy codes that would bring us in line with 2021 standards that have numerous potential benefits to new homeowners, including an estimated 16.3% annual utility bill savings, or approximately $335 a year. And of course, the built environment is a large contributor of carbon emissions, 
So building more efficient homes will help us get closer to our carbon emissions reduction goals as a state. If you'd like to help protect the ability of the Building Code Council to determine the future of our codes in the state, now's the time to reach out to your North Carolina senator asking them to vote no on House Bill 488. I've included more information in the show notes with a link to an action alert to reach out directly to your elected official. Okay, on to the show. As mentioned a few minutes earlier, we recorded an episode of the podcast at this year's State Energy Conference focused on federal funding for electric transportation. And before we get started, I wanted to share my gratitude and appreciation to the North Carolina Clean Energy Technology Center for the invitation to join them with the podcast and for all the great work that they do in the clean energy ecosystem. So with all of that being said, let's jump right into today's conversation. So we initially sort of imagined the panel conversation today, which as you see in your agenda is focused on federal funding and what that means for North Carolina. The conversation was, well, is, is it a tired narrative talking about all the federal funding coming? Knowing that the bipartisan infrastructure law was passed in 2021, the IRA was passed in the summer of last year, but then we talked a lot more about it, and, and you know we still haven't received guidance on certain portions of the funding. There are still plans being developed, as we're, we'll talk about in our panel here today. And I know a lot of people in the room here are really interested still in how that funding is going to get distributed and what funding is available. Because I was just going through spreadsheets last week looking at all the different pools of funding that are in the IRA, and there is a lot going on. So hopefully we'll start to unpack a little bit of that here today as it relates to electric vehicles, and specifically electric vehicle infrastructure, and also uh, the vehicles themselves. And then specifically some other themes that I've heard quite a bit over the past six months to a year are concerns about equity and making sure that those funds are being distributed in an equitable and just way to the communities who need it most. And that's really important when you think about Justice 40 initiative under the Biden administration, and I'm sure Richard will talk a little bit about that as well. And then the last piece too is with all this funding, how do we make sure that all of that funding is spent in a, in a smart manner so that the infrastructure and equipment are still operable and on the road 20, 30 years from now uh, as, we, as we start to see more EVs deployed and ensure that EV drivers, especially first time EV drivers, have a good experience so they go back and purchase another EV. So we're gonna unpack a lot of that in our conversation here today and we have three incredible speakers who are gonna tell you about some of their work going on uh, from both the, the federal government, uh, the nonprofit, and then also the private sector side of things. So with that, uh, our speakers honestly need very little introduction, so I'm gonna just introduce them uh, by their names and the organizations that they're with, and then I'm gonna have them talk a little bit more about some of the work that they're doing in this space. So first up, I'm really excited to introduce Dr. Shelley Francis, who is the co-founder and managing partner with EV Noir. So Dr. Francis, you wanna tell us a little bit more about some of your work in this space? Thank you so much. It's so wonderful to be here with you today. So what I was thinking about uh, when you, we were looking at the introductions, and I said, so this is, I used to live in North Carolina between 2000 and 2005. So this is the first time I will say I've been in the wolf's den as a Tar Heel, but I am being treated very well by the wolf pack folks. So uh, great to be here with you guys. I see somebody in the back. Hey. 
Okay, so um, a little bit about our organization and a little bit of a background about me. So I come to the space as a former medical school professor who was specializing in environmental public health disparities. And so that's the lens that I use, a public health lens, thinking about how the social determinants of health impact mobility, transportation, access, and health. And so the social determinants of health are the various factors, so access to health care, income, uh, you know, access to uh, equitable housing or affordable housing, just how are those different proximate factors impacting mobility. So that's the lens that I view this conversation in. And so EV Noir is a, con a consultancy that focuses on electric connectors shared and autonomous mobility solutions. Within that sector, we focus on electrification best practices and electrification diversity, equity, and inclusion. So we work with OEMs, we work with utilities and co-ops, cities, municipalities, the rideshare companies, delivery network companies, charging network companies, and the, you know, the different federal offices to help craft and implement decarbonization strategies. So it might be something like we're working on um, a landscape assessment for an aviation partner, assessing how that uh, aviation partner is viewed by different community and business stakeholders, or we might be implementing research on autonomous vehicle product placement in various communities. So our work runs the gamut. Um, what I will say is that in working in this space, one of the things that we realize is that we need to make sure that our technology is inclusive and equitable to different communities. And so that's how we founded our nonprofit organization, EV Hybrid Noir. So EV Hybrid Noir is a, is a 501c3 nonprofit. It's the nation's largest network of diverse EV drivers and enthusiasts. And for us, our mission is to accelerate or equitably accelerate multimodal clean transportation in a way that all communities can access. It's also a membership organization with probably the largest number of diverse EV owners and enthusiasts. We have thousands of members across the United States as well as outside the United States with hundreds of members here in North Carolina. And the idea of the organization is that we help facilitate uh, and accelerate clean transportation in a number of ways. So one, it is facilitating data-driven research. It's uh, educating key stakeholders and diverse stakeholders. It's also um, looking at creative financing where charging infrastructure is placed and cited and also looking at workforce and economic development opportunities. So I'll stop there and allow the space for you to talk a little bit about our other panelists, Dr. Ezeke. Thank you so much for all that incredible work. And I don't know how you keep up with all of it between both of those organizations and traveling. I know uh, just a couple of weeks ago, you were in DC with EPA Administrator Michael Regan helping to announce some new clean car standards, which probably many of you have heard about. So thanks for all you're doing in the space and for coming up to visit us again in North Carolina. All right, so next up, I have uh, Richard Ziki, who is the Program Communications Specialist with the Joint Office of Energy and Transportation. So Richard, do you mind telling us a little bit more about some of the work that you're doing and what the Joint Office of Energy and Transportation is? Of course. Uh, Matt, thank you for uh, that introduction. And on behalf of uh, my Executive Director, Gabe Klein, uh, Secretary Granholm from the Department of Energy, and Secretary Buttigieg from the Department of Transportation, uh, just really glad to be here. Um, as Matt said, my name is uh, Richard Ezeke. Uh, I official title is Program Communications Specialist at the Joint Office of Energy and Transportation. And I would also like to say I'm glad to be back here in North Carolina. I was a graduate of NC State 
I'm in 2005, uh, chemical engineer. So uh, I'm glad to be in familiar territory. Sorry, Shelly, NC State, UNC. Mm, we know what's real here. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> okay, anyway, uh, but back to the electrification talk. Um, so uh, in terms of my background, I mean, I got my chemical engineering degree here almost uh, 20 years ago, so you can age me that way, and um, continued on to get my PhD in, in chemical engineering in Michigan. So um, in a sense, I was kind of connected to transportation in a way. You know, I was mostly working in the lab, uh, doing our, uh, emission reduction experiments. Um, but I never thought 10 years later that I would be in this space talking about electrification, talking about transportation. But I had a pretty interesting path to get to where I'm at. After I graduated, I did patents and I did uh, really, it wasn't really for me. And then uh, all of a sudden, I got a call from the Congressional Black Caucus Foundation to do transportation policy, particularly focusing on equity and workforce development for, for black communities. So in that sense, I kind of got pushed into the policy space. And since then, I've worked in the nonprofit space. Uh, I've worked uh, in urban planning. I mean, I actually worked for a little bit for E.B. Hubbard Noir with Shelley and her colleague, uh, Travis, so Terry Travis, so I know her very well and the great work that she and her team are doing. And then got the call from the Joint Office of Energy and Transportation um, to uh, support all the funds that are coming out of the uh, bipartisan infrastructure law focused on EV charging. So in terms of my role, uh, I focus on communications, education, stakeholder outreach, building out our website called driveelectric.gov where we put a lot of our resources uh, from the federal government, uh, state plans for NEVI and CFI, and I'll talk a little bit about like, what those programs are in a minute. But you know, I've always had this interest in being able to communicate the message about clean transportation to the broader masses, and I'm really blessed to be in the role that I'm, I'm at now to, to do that with the power of federal government behind me. So for those who aren't familiar with the Joint Office of Transportation, we were established in the uh, bipartisan infrastructure law in late 2021, and our mission is to, is to make sure that we have a role where everybody can ride and drive electric. Um, in terms of our actual priorities, we focus on technical assistance analysis and, and guidance on four specific programs. Of course, our main, pro, the main program they focus on is the National Electric Vehicle Infrastructure Program, or NEVI. Um, that's $5 billion in formula funds that are given to states to implement particularly DC fast charging along highway corridors. We are also helping to support the charging and fueling infrastructure program. That's a discretionary grant program that actually was just released uh, last month, and deadline is next, next, next month in May, and that is $2.5 billion particularly focused on electric vehicle uh, charging and also uh, alternative fuel infrastructure charging, particularly propane, hydrogen, and natural gas. And within that program, it's split into, into $1.25 billion for corridor charging, so building charging infrastructure along alternative fuel corridors, um, which I think North Carolina has almost 2,000 miles in its highway network, and then the other half of building uh, for community charging. So really trying to focus on how do we build uh, charging infrastructure in communities uh, to really fill in the gaps and with the whole idea of providing a robust, um, equ equitable, and accessible charging African infrastructure. We also support the uh, EPA's uh, low and no emission program to encourage electrification of transit, bu transit buses, so working with transit agencies. And then we also support, actually that's the FTA, excuse me, and the EPA focuses on the clean school bus program. Um, that's $5 billion to support the electrification of school bus programs, so directly working with school, school agencies and school districts. Um, and so uh, we help to uh, support those programs, um, and particularly supporting the Federal Highway Administration, who are the manager of those programs. And uh, we are kind of a unique, in a unique space between the Department of Energy and Department of Transportation, 
being able to leverage the, uh, the resources of both agencies, really to focus on a whole of government approach to really tackle uh, this uh, charging challenge, to really, again, focus on electrifying our transportation and, and cleaning our transportation network, because as we all know, transportation is the largest generator of greenhouse gas emissions, and our focus on electrifying and cleaning our, our transportation network is, is very key. Uh, so that's a little bit about me and my joint office, and I look forward to uh, the questions and discussion that we have. Thank you. Thanks, Richard. And, and as we'll hear in a little bit, uh, as part of that NEVI program, North Carolina is slated to get somewhere in the ballpark of $109 million to invest in EV charging infrastructure. So we'll dive into that uh, in, in just a little bit. And to your point about transportation being the largest source of greenhouse gas emissions, the North Carolina Department of Environmental Quality uh, just last year released their greenhouse gas inventory, which showed that transportation now has overtaken the electricity sector as the highest emitting sector in North Carolina. So this work is incredibly important here for the state. All right, and so uh, last up, I wanna introduce Walter Thorne, who is the SVP of Product and Strategy with Charger Help, who is joining us virtually. Uh, I'm feeling a little bit self-conscious. I can see myself up on the screen there, and I feel like I'm kind of like towering over the room. So th thank you for accommodating me, and, and apologies that uh, our CEO, Camille, won't, can't be there with you all in person today. Uh, but I'm very glad to be joining this, this great panel. Uh, like I said, my name is Walter Thorne. I work for a startup company uh, called Charger Help, and we're focused on helping ensure reliable charging experiences for both public and private charging infrastructure, which is obviously especially important for uh, that infrastructure that's, that's being publicly funded through uh, NEVI and the Inflation Reduction Act and, and other government programs. Um, a few different aspects of what we do at Charger Help. Uh, on what, you know, our, our core product is around technology solutions for operations and maintenance, uh, and that's really looking at integrating field service, uh, collaborating with EV charging station manufacturers, and then also network software providers. And you know, the the key for us in that approach is is really thinking about how we integrate field service data and the observations that technicians are making in the field with uh, the data that's collected by these network charging stations themselves. And so we can talk a little bit more about that in terms of how we think about uh, EV charging reliability. But but we do believe that that in-person component is is extremely important. And so that, that kind of ties in the second part of our business, which is really around workforce development and ensuring equity in the new jobs that are being created as we make this shift towards electrified transportation. So our company was was founded by by two women. Camille Terry has experience in EV charging at a network provider and she was doing a lot of work, you know, with drivers and early adopters that were out in the field and experiencing the reliability challenges that that EV charging stations have had for a while now. Um, and you know, and she was working firsthand with those drivers. They were doing things in the field with the charging stations. She was looking at the back end data and they were collaborating towards solutions. And so she saw that opportunity and, and saw obviously the need as we scale this this industry that, you know, dr EV drivers aren't going to be the ones that are that are in the field to, to support these stations. We need you know, folks that are specifically trained for that. And so our, our other co-founder, Yvette Ellis, comes from a, a long career in the with the Department of Labor. So one of the first things that they did was actually help create a new job code for EVSC technicians. So we at Charger help employ a number of EVSC technicians who are, are trained specifically for doing operations and maintenance work on EV charging station equipment. 
as well as we do kind of training as a service. So uh, we help train EVSE technicians who get hired by other organizations, whether it's network providers, charging station manufacturers, vehicle OEMs, et cetera. Uh, and at this point, we've trained over a thousand people for that job. And and one of the th- exciting things that we're doing right now is actually working with SAE on a certification credential for that EVSC technician. And so we're doing that with uh, a consortium of folks from throughout the industry, charging station manufacturers, EV OEMs, to really formalize that credential and, and make it something that is transferable across different jobs as folks grow through their career as EVSE technicians. And so through that work, you know, especially on the workforce development side, working directly with community colleges, workforce development centers, we've we've been able to build, you know, both for ourselves and then also through the folks that we've trained, just a very equitable pipeline of of talent that is needed to support this infrastructure as it's getting built and and placed out into the field. And so we're very excited for both the work we're doing and the the outcomes that we've been able to achieve in terms of helping our customers uh, improve the reliability of their EV charging equipment, but also the way that we're doing it and the way that, you know, equity is is a core tenant of, of the way that we're approaching the business. For the remainder of the the time that we have here this afternoon, I want to actually focus most of our time on a facilitated Q&A. So I've got a number of questions here for our panelists. So to kick things off, I want to go to Richard here and and talk about the bipartisan infrastructure law that was passed at the end of 2021, where we saw $7.5 billion allocated for EV charging infrastructure with the goal of more than 500,000 new EV chargers on the road. So from a high level, can you tell us a little bit more about how those funds are gonna be distributed and where we're currently at in the process? Of course, Uh, so to answer your first question about how those funds are gonna be distributed, yeah, that funding, as I mentioned earlier, is gonna be distributed primarily through formula funding, the $5 billion through formula funding. So it's specific to population and also designated uh, mileage of uh, what we call alternative fuel quarters, uh, which you can find on DOE's website, you can see like which, which quarters are designated in your state. And so we've, that funding is going to be distributed over five years. Uh, so we've already distributed funding for fiscal year 2022 and 2023, which the total is about $1.5 billion. For that funding to be uh, distributed, of course, as I mentioned, every state had, had to submit a plan, which they did in December 2022, and that had to be approved by the Federal High Administration, which those were. Um, and of course, North Carolina has uh, their plan already. And if you go to driveelectric.gov, our joint office website, you can actually go to each state and download that plan. Um, so you can see like, actually, you know, what North Carolina's plan for installing EV charging is going to be. So uh, that money is, is already accessible. And what's going to happen now is that each of the states are going to develop their own procurement process. All the states are at various levels. Of, we probably have about you know, maybe 10 or 12 states that have already kind of put their uh, information out to the public. And some states are still uh, working on their out the procurement processes, trying to get those together, but eventually they'll be out for organizations, companies, uh, businesses to apply to support that charging. So uh, that's where we are on the funding. Um, in terms of the state plans, they have to be renewed every year. Um, so we are in a process, states are in the process of submitting their updates uh, to, the, to the Federal Administration and the Joint Office for, uh, for renewal. Again, we have uh, specific requirements for each state to address in their plans around uh, the, the requirements for NEVI, which is having DC fast charging stations, uh, four ports, uh, each of 150 kilowatts, and in terms of their location, they had to be every 50 miles on the highway and at least uh, at a maximum one mile away uh, from the highway. The focus is kind of building out that, that corridor charging and then using the other funds like the charging infrastructure program to build out the rest of the network. 
Um, so that's where we are with, with NEVI, and, uh, and of course with the CFI program, which is the other major part of the charging network. We, as I mentioned in my introduction, we already have 700 million, which is 300 million from fiscal year 2022, and fiscal year 2023 have 400 million that was released. We shared information about the, about the CFI in March 30th of this year. So uh, states, localities, regional governments, tribal organizations, collaboration or combination of both organizations can apply to that funding and you know, submit those applications, which the, in terms of the deadline is in May. So already in the, in the first two fiscal years, we got the money out there. We're encouraging states, we're encouraging localities, we're encouraging uh, other organizations to, to submit and, and get access to that funding. So we're moving pretty quickly. Yeah, so speaking of moving quickly, you've had to review a lot of plans from a lot of different states, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to test you here to make sure you've read the North Carolina plan. So can you share some, some insights about yeah, what yeah. North Carolina's plan looks like and maybe mm-hmm. how it might differ from what other states are, are putting forward? Yeah, so I, I read the entire 100-page-plus uh, plus plan in an instant before I came here, and I was really impressed with a few things. And the first thing is that, of course, you know, North Carolina has, in terms of the uh, funding that has been released, it's about $40 million, $16 million for 2022, and about $23 million for FY 2023. So the state already has that funding. And in terms of the, the way they build their the infrastructure, um, it's in two phases, if I remember correctly. One is focused on uh, building up the corridors, the state and the state plan. And, and Jen, of course, she can you know, call me out if I'm wrong here. Uh, but like, there's about, I think, 30, a total 33 stations and 132 chargers, which about nine are ready and 24 are in process. So state's moving forward, and that's really good to see that. So that's on the, tr- on the, on the extra charging side. Now, I didn't mention in my introduction, but, I, but it has been shared by my fellow co- my colleagues within the Joint Office to also focus a lot on equity and Justice 40, and also lead the workforce development strategy at the Joint Office. So um, really, uh, I specifically mentioned, looked, focused on those parts of the plan within, the, uh, within North Carolina. And you know, being in a state that has a significant amount of, of, of minority serving institutions, like you know, Central, North Carolina Central, with the same state university, North Carolina A&T, Elizabeth City State Universities. So much uh, talent, diverse talent in our, our universities uh, are in the state. And so there's a lot of opportunity, and I think North Carolina ha- can be a leader in really showing how you know, this funding can really support a diverse community through the talent uh, that it has in the state. And so I think North Carolina's uh, plans regarding um, equity and workforce development particularly were, were very strong, and I think it can be used as a model uh, for other states to follow. And then thirdly, uh, I'll also as I mentioned, is like both North Carolina has some of the largest, uh, the highest mileage of, of highways and also a significant amount of rural areas. Uh, we just, we just actually, the uh, Federal Highway Administration, we just released its Rural EV Toolkit, which provides guidance on how rural counties uh, can support EV charging. And I think North Carolina uh, has a lot of great information in the plan about how to build out charging uh, to be effective in, and used by people in rural counties. And again, I think North Carolina can be a leader in that. So those are the three things that stood out to me among many other amazing things in the plan. So, Yeah, and, and, and to your point, North Carolina, as far as I'm aware, is, has the second most state-owned highways in the country behind Texas, which always surprises folks. Uh, so there's you know, a lot of funding needed to maintain those roads, and I know that's been a, a big conversation lately, too, is as vehicles get more efficient, how do you come up with the funding to, to maintain those roads? But we're not going to get into that conversation here. So I do have a question for Dr. Francis, and actually this is related to some of the questions that have been coming up in the chat, which is talking about the vehicle adoption side. And we saw in the Inflation Reduction Act a number of tax credits that were passed, one including for, for EVs themselves. So 
Do we anticipate that some of these tax credits included with the Inflation Reduction Act will, will help to break down some of the upfront cost barriers, especially for low and moderate income communities to help uh, with the accessible sort of transition and adoption of EVs? So before I answer your question, I just want to ask the audience a quick question just to, to get a pulse of who's in the room. So how many people in the audience are dri currently driving electric vehicles? Okay, that's pretty good. Usually when I'm in an audience like this, there's like five people. So, <laughs> so this is good. So in response to your question, the, the addition of tax credits incentives, will that help spur EV adoption? So yes, potentially. So, and I say yes, potentially, and this is why I say that. So when you look at more progressive markets with a much higher EV penetration rate, there's basically a multi-phase approach to accelerating EV adoption. So for us in the United States and specifically within North Carolina, if we wanna move away from early adopters to mass adoption, we do need to have rebates and incentives. But before we go to the rebates and incentives, we actually need to do a better job of education and awareness. And so, um, you know, some of the work that we've done specifically here in North Carolina with our partner, uh, Southern Alliance for Clean Energy, SACE, has found that when you, you know, take a deeper dive and pull back the layers, there's not a really good understanding of EVs and EV adoption and technology in diverse communities specifically. Um, even in general market communities, there's still a lot of myths, questions about charging. There's angst about infrastructure, about cost. So yes, tax incentives and rebates can play a role. There's a number of ways to actually spur EV adoption. So you have tax credits, you have rebates, you have uh, tax deductions. When you look at the data, the direct point of sale rebate is actually shown to be one of the best ways for lower income communities and communities of color to access um, the technology. One of the things that we have seen when you look at clean energy and rebates broadly is that the individuals in higher quintiles in terms of income are more likely to access you know, tax credits and rebates. So again, that goes back to why organizations like an EV hybrid noir are needed, why a SACE and others in the room are needed to do that outreach and engagement, both to general consumers, but also to rural consumers, the LGBTQ plus community, black, Hispanic, native and tribal communities, and more. Those people who you wouldn't see as the um, typical EV driver or user, but those people are out there and we do need to you know, just do a better job of normalizing what EV adoption looks like, talking about the benefits of EV adoption, both from a public health perspective, but also from that workforce and economic development perspective because we know that you gotta know your audience, you gotta read the room, and so the public health aspect is not gonna be a selling point for some communities, neither is climate change, but workforce and economic development opportunities you know, can be one of those deciding factors that helps move the needle forward. And speaking of economic development opportunities, we've seen a number of EV manufacturers set up shop here in North Carolina as well, which is helping to provide jobs for rural communities across the state. So there's both sides of the equation. To, to follow up on, on what you were talking about there, your organization has been involved in direct outreach and engagement in North Carolina to, to gauge public perception and opinion around EVs and hosting focus groups with uh, diverse communities. What did some of that research show here in the state? Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, I'd like to recognize our partner on that research was SACE. And so one of the things that we did was we surveyed both black and Hispanic 
um, community stakeholders or, or residents in North Carolina as well as in the RD, with a focus in the RDU area. And so uh, what we found, particularly I'll start with Hispanic community participants first, is that when it comes to transportation and mobility, there's more of a um, communal perspective around transportation and mobility. So they will utilize carpooling, kind of like ride sharing to address mobility gaps in their community. So it's almost like they have their own community ride share pilot. They identified, and we see this in the data, that you know North Carolina has uh, a number of barriers around public transportation. And so with lower income participants in this project, we found that they were supplementing lack of access to a personal vehicle by utilizing ride share. They also, I wanted to read a quote that they shared with us about you know, the access to transportation and that being a major gap. So one of the participants in what we did was a one-on-one -on -one key informant interview. They said that it's important to open more bus stops. For example, if we have a food pantry on site in our building, and our clients have to walk a mile at least in order to get to us. If they're coming for food, imagine walking back with five bags of heavy groceries to the bus stop. We also found that what's very interesting is that, um, you know, due to the impacts of COVID, people were utilizing rideshare and not public transportation. But then we found like nine out of 10 individuals who said that they used public transportation were people of color. We also found that like another interesting data point was that among black women and men, black women of higher incomes were more likely to be EV drivers. So that was an interesting finding. And we've seen you know, that interest in larger studies. So we did a nationally representative study with Consumer Reports, Union of Concerned Scientists and Green Latinos in the fall. And one of the things that we found was that, that black, Hispanic, Asian consumers were as interested as white participants or even more interested in getting an electric vehicle. And so when you look, take information like that, and there's, we've seen numerous data points like that in our own studies, but when you look at what is available in terms of marketing material, communications material, and the limited campaigns around EVs, you don't see that diversity reflected. You don't even see the diversity of you know, individuals who may have more mobility needs than other. And so those are some things that we have to think about as we're trying to accelerate mass adoption. We have to make sure the work uh, the policies, the communications, the marketing materials are culturally relevant and appropriate. So just kind of to wrap up in terms of things that we saw in North Carolina, obviously there's a lot of opportunities to engage rural communities, communities of color, uh, lower income communities, and they don't always mean that they're the same communities. So just things to note, but there's obviously a lot of opportunities and need to be really intentional, but having a data-driven approach is really a key place to start. So instead of like, you know, some states and some communities have a lot of resources to fund multimodal clean transportation. So they can throw a lot of ideas at the wall and do what sticks, but the best practice is to utilize a data-driven approach where you're engaging with those end users, those consumers and communities to find out how to tailor their specific mobility pilots and programs and policies or leverage existing uh, resources to create strategy that's gonna work best for where their mobility needs and gaps and opportunities are.
Yeah, thank you for all the incredible work that your organization has done in, in North Carolina and the Southeast on, in this space. I know we're getting closer to the, the end of our, our time here, but I want to make sure to, to call on Walter again. So, so given the amount of funding that we just talked about investing in infrastructure throughout North Carolina and the country, what are, you know, how do we ensure that those chargers maintain a high degree of reliability and uptime as more and more EVs hit the road? I, I think it's, we've, we've highlighted earlier that user experience when it comes to charging is incredibly important, especially when we want to make sure that users are considering purchasing an EV for their second vehicle or for, you know, after their first experience with it. So how do we maintain that high degree of reliability and uptime? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think in our experience, there's a number of, of factors that are, are critical. You know, I think first starts with workforce development. And for us, you know, having uh, skilled and, and qualified technicians that are ready to support the equipment that are from the, the local community and aren't having to, to travel long distances to be able to service the equipment is really important. And what we also find is that those technicians, as they're out in the field, end up being ambassadors for charging and, or, and for EV adoption generally. And so, again, you know, just having them be local, be from the community, be advocates and ambassadors for, you know, both training new drivers on how to even use the charging equipment in some cases, but but certainly like if they're having any issues when they're on site, you know, our, our technicians are often the front lines of supporting those customers, you know, if they happen to come across them uh, when they're in the field. The other components of, of ensuring, you know, higher reliability really comes down to the, the collaboration across the ecosystem. So one of the things that, you know, we're doing with the way our, we support our customers is, is ensuring that we do have service level commitments that we're making in terms of our responsiveness when a charger goes down and, and how quickly we're going to get a technician out into the field to address that issue. But we think that's important across the, the whole ecosystem as well. So, you know, the working with manufacturers to, to have service level agreements on how quickly they're going to respond, how quickly they're going to get parts shipped out, you know, thinking about spare parts strategies and what are the parts that we're actually going to hold in market so that we're not needing to mail those across the country or, or potentially be uh, affected by, you know, supply chain delays or, or other issues. Uh, and then similarly, uh, SLAs for the charging station network software providers as well. So, you know, for us, it's a really collaborative opportunity to ensure reliability. And we play, you know, kind of a central role in helping coordinate across all of the different stakeholders in, in solving that. But really getting clear on, on commitments. And, and I love you know, even the discussion on, on, you know, how do we apply data to solving these problems? So that's an, another piece of what we're doing, you know, with Charger Help and the technology platforms we're building is, is helping both measure response times and understand, you know, when it takes us two weeks to, to fix a broken charger or, or you know, in some cases it's, it's even longer than that, you know, why is that? And and using that data to inform activities we can take to help reduce time to resolution. And then as well as inform things like, you know, what are the spare parts that we're consuming so that we can kind of optimize our stocking strategy for uh, parts that we're holding in market. So, you know, very important to just have that localization approach, but also using data to inform kind of how we, how we approach the, the reliability problems. And somewhat related to that, I did see a question come in asking about the, the lifespan of EV chargers and, and the life cycle, especially thinking about end of life. So I, I want to kind of reconfigure that question a little bit for, for Richard. When, when you're thinking about 
how you're distributing all of these funds. What sort of criteria are you putting in place to help future-proof the EV charging infrastructure that's being deployed to ensure that, you know, five, ten years from now, that charging equipment is still online and operable? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So about two months ago, we released the uh, minimum standards under NEVI, which includes information about charge drive time, which was discussed earlier, and also uh, standardizing ports, uh, among other different things. And, and part of those standards included future-proofing, right? And so when we talk about future-proofing, you know, we're thinking about how do we design stations that so as technology advances in electric vehicle charging, that it's really easy to swap out parts to adapt to that new technology. So uh, that includes the type of charger. So when we talk about standardizing CCS ports or the J11772 uh, port and being able to utilize parts that can be easily inter interchangeable um, and interoperable. So you don't have situations like in some of our initial uh, charging infrastructure that was developed, you know, it breaks down within three to five years, right? And so thinking about uh, strategies where um, swapping up parts is, is going to be uh, is, 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 is easy to do and low cost is very important to do that. And, and we provided, the Federal Administration has provided standards to focus on that. Now, we're not trying to be, I don't think, in terms of what we do with standards, we don't try to, you know, limit or, or narrow what can be done. We really want to provide a, a wide a range of, of options, but we do want to ensure that those options that, that they can be looked at are easily uh, accessible, easily doable, um, and at low cost so uh, you don't have a significant downtime due to technology advancing. So those are some of the things that we're focusing on. Great. Well, I have a list of probably about 20 other questions that we could run through, but I know Shannon would give me the evil eye if I ran through them. So I'm going to go ahead and wrap up our conversation here. So let's give our panelists a round of applause for all their incredible insights. And, and thank you all for, for joining us for this live episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy podcast. Again, we'll be releasing this on all of our platforms in the next week or so. And if you're particularly interested in a topic like net metering, as an example, we'll be giving a, uh, an episode uh, we'll be releasing this week. So thank you again, everybody, for, for joining us for lunch and for the Clean Tech Center for the opportunity to be up here on stage and for all of our panelists for joining us from all over the country. So thank you again. And my key takeaway from today's show is the importance of forward-thinking strategy and planning to ensure we're investing in a network of chargers and vehicles that are operable, relevant, accessible, and affordable long into the future, and that we're doing so in a way that's inclusive of all communities, especially those that stand to benefit the most from reduced carbon emissions and lower cost of maintenance and operations from electric vehicles. If you want to see what North Carolina has planned for the NEVI funds that will be allocated to the state, I'll include a link in today's show notes that covers the whole plan. And you know the deal. Let's stay in touch on Twitter. Give me a shout at Matt Abel for future episode ideas, questions for our next episode, thoughts on today's episode, and your worst energy joke one-liners. And episode 91 of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast is in the books. But before you leave, don't forget to rate, subscribe, and share the pod on whatever platform you're listening in from. Sharing this podcast with your network and growing the friends of the pod helps us get just a little bit closer to our shared vision of a clean energy economy for North Carolina. All right, that's it. See you all later. <laughs>